reads this. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the, afflict of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that uh, you be with us as we uh, just examine your word this evening. We pray that you would uh, just uh, teach us what you want to teach us and, and help us to uh, just be in awe of you and to even be mindful of uh, how we are to live uh, in, in light of this text. So uh, we pray that you would be honored and you'd be glorified uh, this evening. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if the polls are to believed, or to, are to be believed, there are many people in America who claim to be Christians or at least to have a Christian background. And you have seen, as well as I have, that these other Christians that we meet, whether they are at, we meet them at school or work, uh, many of these professing Christians, they don't act like Christians. In fact, when we observe them, uh, or in what we observe of them, it makes it seem like they are more like the Pharisees than they are like Jesus Christ. And this description of a so-called Christian who grew up in the church but lives like an unbeliever is common in America. This type of Christianity is what we would call cultural Christianity. It's a Christianity that is only Christian in name and perhaps by association because of the culture that someone grew up in. Many of these Christians may even claim that their faith is very important to them, but it is quite evident in the way that they live their lives that their faith does not translate to obedience to Christ. 2020 has made the differences between authentic Christians and cultural Christians increasingly stark. If you look at the comment section in theological blogs or the Twitter accounts of big-name pastors, you get the sense that Christianity is under attack. But this attack is not necessarily from atheists or people of other faiths. This attack is brought on from within as people identifying themselves as Christians wage an online war of sarcasm, snark, and shame on other Christians who disagree with them. Now, I admit that uh, I often look at these comment sections out of just pure morbid interest, uh, and while at times I'm intrigued by some of the, the dialogue that occurs in these sections, uh, I can also be really discouraged. And, and saddened by the fact that there are so many people out there who call themselves Christians but are clearly still lost in their sins. And it could not be, it doesn't have to be limited to the comment section. It, it can be the portrayal of Christians uh, on TV. Right? On TV, you see all these people who call themselves Christians, and they're some of the worst people. 
And it really just goes to show that just because you grow up in church, you pray the prayer, and you serve in church, doesn't mean that you have genuine saving faith. Our psalm this evening, it was written by David, as you can see uh, underneath our English translation chapter titles. Right? It was written by David, but it was for the choir director. This psalm was meant to be put to music, to instruct believers who heard the lyrics uh, to, about the sad reality of the wickedness that exists among those who claim to love Yahweh. Though it is sad and discouraging that such people can harm others within the believing community, David intends to encourage believers that Yahweh does in fact see all that is going on and will deliver those who are oppressed and taken advantage of by these false believers. And this evening, we're going to observe three truths, three truths that can comfort believers openly opposed by false believers. Three truths that can comfort believers opposed by false believers. The first truth that can comfort believers opposed by false believers is that Yahweh sees the foolish. Yahweh sees the foolish. Verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. David begins by introducing us to a person that he identifies as a fool. People who are fools are those who claim there is no God. And this claim is not a claim uh, that is made outwardly necessarily, but it's made in the heart. This is the inward attitude that the fool has. Now, the fool could say this out loud, or he could verbally express uh, his belief that there is no God, but for the most part, this is an inward attitude that the fool has. Now, initially, when you read the first part of verse 1, you're probably thinking that the fool that is being described is an atheist, because we know that atheists, they believe that God doesn't exist. And though atheists would have no problem agreeing with the statement of the fool, we have to remember that David writes this psalm during a time when it was typical for people to believe in the existence of gods, plural. Right? They believed in multiple gods. And for someone to deny the existence of the gods, let alone the God of Israel, Yahweh, that was not at all common. So instead of viewing the fool as an atheist, it would be better for us to understand the foolish as those who outwardly professed belief in God, but their inner attitude, the way that they lived their life, was as if there was no God. In other words, they were cultural followers of God. They were cultural uh, Israelites but they did not actually have a true relationship with God. Now, these fools who did not have a relationship with God, uh, David observes that these fools are corrupt. And this corruption is evidenced by their deeds. Right? He describes their deeds as abominable, uh, deeds that are hated by God. Now, why would they act in a way that God hates, especially if they grew up going, um, going to the temple, listening to God's word taught, uh, and, and they were taught uh, the faith uh, for in their very households? Why would they, why would they uh, live like this? 
It's because they do not believe that God will do anything about their actions. They don't think that God sees. They don't think that God's, uh, God, God's going to respond to what they've done. And so as a result, it is clear that all who are foolish, they're, they're going to fail to do good because they feel like they can do whatever they want. Verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So similar to the language that we saw in Psalm 2, we again get this image of Yahweh looking down from heaven. Yahweh is not ignorant of the deeds of the sons of men. Contrary to to what they believed, he saw them. He knows what they were doing. And this time... He's not scoffing or laughing at those who rebel against them, but he is looking. He's looking to see if there are any who seek after God. Now, on a theological note, we know that God is omnipotent. We know that he is omniscient. Yeah, sorry, he's omniscient, not omnipotent. He's omniscient, or he's all-knowing. He does not need to examine us to know what is in our hearts. He already knows what's in our hearts. He doesn't need to see if there are any who understand. But this anthropomorphism, this language of God examining us, it's communicating to us that God's judgment on mankind is not a knee-jerk reaction. His understanding of us is thorough. He's, He's looked at us. He's examined our lives. He does not judge us based on circumstantial evidence. He knows the depths of our hearts. There is no possibility of a mistrial with God because he knows our hearts perfectly. So the understanding that Yahweh is seeking to find in our hearts is not whether we have an understanding of the way that the world works. It's not... Um, an an evaluation of whether we did well in school. Uh, It's not even uh, an evaluation of of whether we have worldly wisdom, some street smarts. Rather, God's evaluation, his, his judgment is based off of whether there are any people who understand true wisdom. And what is that? What is true wisdom? It's if you seek after God. Proverbs 9.10 confirms this for us, reminding us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. God has made it clearly known to His people who He is and what He expects of them as a result of their relationship with Him. And yet, left to our own devices, the sin nature in our heart prevent us from rightly responding to Him. We are all indeed found to be fools who do not seek after God because of the folly in our hearts, at least before Christ. But before Christ, we are all fools. None of us are wise. None of us understand. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. If verse 3 sounds familiar to you, it should. And um, there are actually two different occurrences of this outside of Psalm 14. The first occurrence uh, of this uh, phrasing, actually, uh, basically this entire psalm 
is reproduced. So Psalm 14 is almost entirely reproduced word for word in Psalm 53. But in Psalm 53, David has a different purpose for it. And uh, basically, he just retools the, the psalm and uses it for, uh, for, to, for another song, basically, for another uh, teaching moment. And, uh, you know, we're familiar with that. We repurpose songs all the time. Right. Uh, Chris Tomlin does that all the time. Right. He 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 sings. He, he, he uh, brings up these old hymns. He adds he adds new choruses to it. And and um, and then he says, here, new song. Right. It's not really a new song. It's it's a kind of an old song, but it, it's still a new song. And in a sense, that's what David does in Psalm 53 with Psalm 14. He he applies the song. Uh, the, 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 he, sorry. Excuse me. He applies the song to the other nations that desire to harm Israel. Now, uh, the, the better known recurrence of this verse is found in Romans 3, when Paul is talking about how the entire world is guilty of sin because every single person has rejected the truth that Yahweh has revealed. Right? So this, this, uh, this idea that there's no one who does good, not even one, that should sound very, very familiar to you. Now, David's intent in Psalm 14 is a revealing of Yahweh's evaluation of mankind. The idea that people, uh, that we all turn aside, carries with it this idea that we're all supposed to be on a path, right? The path is supposed, uh, we all have one proper path, the path of obedience, uh, the path that worships God. And what we have instead of people following the path is that they're turning aside, they're going off the path, they're veering away from God, they're veering away from righteousness. Right? They're not seeking God as He intended. Right? They're, they're, um, sometimes it's because they want um, they want other things. They want other gods. Perhaps you know they're turning away from God because they're distracted with things in life, and as a result, every single person has become corrupt. Because right? if the path is towards righteousness, but we're turning aside from the path to do whatever we want. There is no righteousness, right? There's only corruption. So God declares through David, there is no one who does good, not even one. And so we have to recognize, those of us who call ourselves Christians, and those of us who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that apart from God's mercy and grace, that we fall under this category. This applies to us. We cannot look at other people, especially other people that we believe to be false believers or that we know are for sure unbelievers and pretend like we're any better than they are or any more deserving of salvation than they are because we're not for the grace of God given to us. We're not for the righteousness that God credits to our account because he gifted faith to us. We would similarly be the ones who are corrupt we would similarly be the ones who have turned aside and done abominable deeds. I know that at times when we look at life and we look at the way that other people act, that it might seem like God does not see the unrighteous, that God doesn't really care about the deeds of the wicked, that people who are foolish continue in their folly and nothing ever happens to them. In fact, it might seem like they succeed. But be assured of this. God sees the fools. He knows 
their ins and their outs. He knows the thoughts of their hearts. He sees how their acts of corruption affect his people. He is not deceived. He is not blind. And that leads us to the second truth that can comfort believers opposed by false believers, and that is Yahweh delivers the righteous. Yahweh delivers the righteous. Verse 4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? Here we have a rhetorical question, and it's basically asking, actually two rhetorical questions, it's basically asking, why do people not seek after God if they know he is God? So why do they, uh, why do they not seek after God? Especially since they do know that he is God. I guess that is one rhetorical question. Excuse me. So the fact that God expects the workers of wickedness, that's, you know, these are still the, the same fools that he was referencing in, in uh, Psalm 1, that the fact that he expects the workers of wickedness to know who he is and to call upon his name for salvation indicates that they have no excuse for their lack of belief in God. And they also don't have an excuse to do righteousness. Why? It's because these foolish people are not just unbelievers in the world, but they were, uh, they are unbelievers who were born and raised in Israel. Right? They're the cultural Israelites. These are the people who knew the law. They've been taught the ways of Yahweh. They offer sacrifices and they do everything else that would make them look like good Israelites. Their knowledge of Yahweh should have at least led them to call upon the Lord, to put their faith in God, to worship Him, and to acknowledge Him as God, but it did not. Nor did their knowledge of Yahweh prevent them from praying on those who are truly God's people. They took advantage of the weak. They took advantage of the ones who were the most exposed. These fools, they act corruptly by taking advantage of God's people like it was nothing. Like it was as common as eating bread with a meal, which was actually quite common in Israelite culture. Uh, for many Asian Americans, the comparison would be uh, to eating rice, right? They eat rice. They, they eat uh, God's people as if they eat rice. Without a second thought, they mistreat God's people. And as a result, the wicked fools should know, because they've learned it all their lives, that they will be experiencing God's judgment. Verse 5. There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. As they've grown up in Israelite culture, knowing the law, knowing what is sin and what is not sin, when when these cultural Israelites find themselves in a position where they are clearly sinning against God, they should know naturally that they deserve God's judgment and will be in God's judgment. And that should cause them to have great dread. Even in their foolishness and hard-hearted rebellion, those, uh, those who uh, live as if God doesn't care or see will recognize the consequence, what the consequences of their actions are going to be. And as a result, they will, um, they will probably 
go through the motions. They'll offer sacrifices to the Lord, believing that just the mere act of sacrifice is what wipes away their sins. And um, you know this dread that fills them, it leads them to a supposed repentance, but uh, they do not actually uh, repent. Uh, but they, they know, right? And, and the reason why they know to repent is because they know that God is with the righteous generation, right? So that's why they're led to repentance. They realize that they need to repent because if they don't, God won't be with them. The same thing can be said for many cultural Christians, can it? If you grew up in the church, when you sin, when you know it's bad enough, you know that you need to ask God for forgiveness, and you know that you need to repent. So you, so, so, uh, so these cultural Christians, they say the words, sometimes with tears, even though they have no intent to stop sinning. Right? Tears are not an indication of whether someone is genuine in their repentance. You can repent with tears. You can be weeping and mourning and wailing, and you could mean absolutely none of it. Why would someone even bother going through the motions of repentance if they have no desire to stop sinning? It's because they know from their Christian background, from their Christian upbringing, that they've sinned against God. And they know they're in trouble. They're in dread of God's judgment. And so they do what they've been trained to do since they were young. When they realize that they crossed the line or that they've been crossing the line, they repent knowing that God would forgive them, and he would, if they were genuine about it. But they're not genuine about it. They're not actually intending to turn away from their sins. And sometimes we can be like that too. Just one more, just one more. I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, God. I won't do it again, but oh, just one more. One more time, one more time. That's, that's what we can be like. Cultural Christians, they have, a, they have various levels of understanding of sin. Some people are really sensitive, right? And they, they may look and act like a genuine believer in God would. And they would repent with tears, desiring more and more of Christ, more of his grace. But they can also just as easily turn back to their sins. Now, other cultural Christians will have a much looser understanding of sin, or even worse, an inaccurate understanding of how God views sin in the lives of his people. And in this worst-case scenario, these cultural Christians who are confronted on their sin, they're going to lash out against the righteous. They're going to say, you can't say that to me. You can't say that to me because God loves me. I know I'm not perfect. I don't claim to be perfect. But God loves me, so you can't say that to me. Right? That's what they'll say. And they'll rebuke the ones who rebuke them. Psalm 14, 16, or, uh, verse 6 says this, You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. See, these workers of wickedness, they reject the words of the righteous. They reject the words of the ones they afflict, trying to instead put the righteous to shame for what they have said. And yet what they fail to realize is that they have 
no superiority here. They have no legs to stand on because Yahweh is not with them. Yahweh is the refuge of the afflicted. Now, you'll notice as we look at Psalm 14, if you just read it again, you'll notice that God, that David refers to God uh, with three of God's names. He uses the name God, he uses the name Lord, and he uses the name Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is the all caps L-O-R-D. And you know, we don't have time to unpack the significance of why David chooses to differentiate the different names of God. But what we notice here in verse 6 is that David specifically uses the name Yahweh when he describes how God is a refuge to the afflicted. And that means that God's relationship with the afflicted, with the righteous, it's not casual. It's not necessarily as one who uh, reigns from a distance and I kind of know you. Where God has a, a deep and intimate understanding with the afflicted. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, a deep and intimate relationship with the afflicted. Now, the fools, they may think that they can silence the words of the righteous and bring shame on them for their views and for their beliefs. But Yahweh's relationship with those who are being afflicted uh, is... Uh, it indicates that he is with them, right? The fact that he's the refuge, it indicates that he's with the righteous, that he has a relationship with them. Cultural believers in God, they act as if God doesn't see them. They live as if God is not real, even though they might acknowledge that he is real. They may say that they are Christians, but they live as practical atheists, functional atheists. They disregard the word of God that the righteous bring up to them because they think, that either they know what is right or that God will understand and he'll give me a free pass. If you are here this evening and you realize that David's description of the fool seems to describe you and your approach to life, please don't brush this off. Please take time to consider whether you actually love God, whether you desire to please him, whether you desire to love others as he commanded and whether you actually desire to turn away from sin to live righteously. It can be really easy. It would be really easy for you to be for, for you to just to say, yeah, of course, I, I love God. Of course, I of course, when I serve, I serve because I love God. You can say that it's really easy to say that. But take a deep look at your life really examine, do I actually have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ? Or am I really just going through the motions because that's what, um, that's the, the cult, that, that's the culture that's around me. That's what I've been taught to do. That's what I've been taught to think. That's how I've been taught to, to act. It's not too late. It's not too late for you to repent. Because even if you've been going through the motions of Christianity for your entire life, it is never too late to stop playing the part and actually begin to have a real relationship with God. So do not be like the fool who thought that he is with God and that God is on his, his, uh, his side when, in fact, the fool is on the outside looking in. For those of you who are doing your best to follow after God, who have truly repented of your sins and are trying to, by God's grace and power, continue to defeat sin in your life, you can take comfort in the fact that God is your refuge. 
There are going to be so-called brothers and sisters who enter our lives and try to tell you that what you know and believe about the Word of God is outdated, untrue, bigotry, a misrepresentation of Christ, too conservative, and so on and so forth. They will cut off friendship with you for calling them out on their moral decisions because, hey, you're being too judgmental. Jesus says, judge not. Right? Or, you're too conservative. Stop being conservative. Right? Stop, stop, stop following after that MacArthur guy. Or that Piper guy. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Do what's right. Follow after the Lord. Right? Don't be discouraged. Take comfort knowing the fact that Yahweh is your refuge, that Yahweh will deliver you from any attacks that might come your way. And strive, strive by God's grace to continue to put on a heart of compassion for those who are lost but believe that they are one with Christ. With love, seek to firmly tell them the truth of God so that if it's the Lord's will, you might win your brother or sister over to the Lord you might bring them to repentance. And that brings us really to our, our third truth that can comfort believers opposed by false believers, and that is Yahweh restores his people. Yahweh restores his people. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And so all of a sudden, here in verse 7, David switches the theme of his song, right? In the first six verses, David's song is a song of instruction. And here we have kind of a, a prayer, a, a prayer wish that David is making known to God, but not just God, right? He's instructing the, the people who, who would sing this song to, to also sing this, to also have this longing, to, this longing for God's promise salvation of the nation of Israel. He's longing for the day when God's chosen people, the ones who believe in him, will be delivered once for all as a fulfillment of God's promises. He wants for some of these cultural Israelites to be saved, and he wants for all of Israel, the ones who believe in God, to, uh, to be saved. He wants for the salvation that comes through the promised king who will reign from Zion to actually happen. Because when that happens, all of Israel will rejoice and be glad. And the rejoicing of God's chosen people, it's occurring in the day when Yahweh restores his captive people. Now, a better translation and more accurate translation of this phrase, uh, Yahweh restores his captive people, is actually when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people. You see, even though God gave the people of Israel the land after the Exodus, they didn't actually receive everything that they were supposed to receive. In fact, there's a lot left on the table because of their sin. They failed to 
uh, to obtain everything that they were supposed to obtain. And so there's, there is a sense where Yahweh's people, though they might prosper in some areas, in some ways, they don't have everything that they're supposed to have. And, and you know, of course, you know, because of wars, David was always at war, almost always at war with others. The nation of Israel um, did not uh, have all the blessing. They did not experience all the blessing that God had promised them. And David knows that these blessings, they're still yet to come. And so he's teaching the people to anticipate God's promises too, to look forward to it. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been taught that God is a God who makes promises and he keeps promises. And so as a result, a lot of us have been taught when we read our Bibles, look for the promises of God and claim those promises. Now, you know, that, that is true to an extent, right? Not every single promise in the Bible is for you. Um, but, you know, there, there is a sense in which we definitely should be claiming the promises that are meant for us, right? We should be looking forward to that. And when there are promises out there that are not directly to us, we should be wanting for God to fulfill those promises too. Why? Because that will be the sign to us, that, that that'll be confirmation to us that God will be faithful to keep his promises to us, right? Because if God will keep his promises to his, his people, his Israelite people, how much more then will he keep his promises to us, to Christians who are grafted into God's people, who experience all the pour over, spill over benefits, spill over blessings that God's people get. Right? We share, we share in Israel's blessings. We don't replace them. We don't take all of their blessings from them. We share in it. And so we should actually long for God to be faithful to Israel, to his chosen people, those who are genuinely saved. Because when he does that, he will also he will also take care of us. And so knowing that God will restore his people, knowing that he will restore the fortunes of his people, we long for that as well. We join in with Israel's rejoicing. Right? When God finally restores them, because we will share in that blessing. Right? Because if uh, think, think about it this way, if we are one with God's people. Right? We say that the church is an organism right? and, and that we are one of another and that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. If we are one with all of God's people, right? the Jewish Christians too, then we should want for them to get their inheritance right? because we're rejoicing with those who rejoice. Right? So we should want for them to get what God has promised. And, and you know, it's, it's just a confirmation that God, the God of, of who, who pays attention to details, he will pay attention to every single one of those details and he will bless us too. Right? He'll keep every one of those promises. He's not going to forget. He's not going to forget. He's, he, he's um, not going to look for loopholes. He's going to be faithful to keep those promises. He's going to save. He's going to make all things right. And he's going to prove that he is indeed with the righteous. Though cultural Christians and, and genuine Christians can be difficult to distinguish between, we have seen lately that the civil war amongst Christians, it's here. It's here. And there are going to be times when 
those whom we expect to have our backs are not going to be there for us. They may actually even be the ones who attack us or betray us. And even if that is the case, what we've learned this evening is that those who are loyal to God and to his word can take great comfort in the fact that our faith in God is not vain. Our faith in God is not vain. Even if other people seem to be getting away with not following after him, our obedience, our love is not in vain. Yahweh sees the foolish. He is very aware of their sinful actions and attitudes against him and against those who truly love him. Yahweh will deliver the righteous. He is with those who love him. He is our refuge. And finally, God's going to restore his people. Right? We're going to experience hardship in this life. And though we might suffer for the name of Christ, God is with us. God is with us. He'll restore us. He's going to deliver us from those trials, and he's going to richly bless those who are his. And as a result, as a result, we should take some time to do a little self-examination. Are we numbered among the righteous? Or are we numbered among the fools? And if we're numbered among the righteous, let's praise God. Let's thank God for his mercy and his grace. Let us be thankful for the fact that though we may be attacked in this life, he is our shelter and our refuge. And, and that what others say, that doesn't affect our, ref, our, our salvation. It might hurt us deeply. It might wound us deeply. But if we are among the righteous, we know that we can that that we are uh, are protected by our God that He sees that He's not blind, and if we are among the righteous, we have to be careful. We have to be mindful of living as if God doesn't exist. And you know that we can, right? We can act sometimes as if God doesn't exist. Sometimes it's just easy, just being tempted to to sin. Right? No one's looking. No one's looking, so yeah, that's okay. All right, God will understand. Just one time, no worries. I'll, I'll just repent later. Let us be wary of living as if God does not exist, because He does. He does. We know that. Let us remember the price Christ paid to redeem us from our sins and live with a desire to please Him in all of our lives. Now, if you do find yourself numbered among the fools this evening, know that despite your rejection of God, he doesn't desire to treat you as an enemy. He wishes that everyone might repent of their sins and be made right with him. Consider the personal cost that he undertook himself in order to save you. He sent his son to die on the cross in your place. And he raised him up from the dead so that when you believe in him, you actually might be saved. You won't still be stuck in your sin. This is the God who loves you and desires to save you. Please take heed of the warning that those who do not believe in God will face judgment. He is gracious and loving, but he also must uphold righteousness and justice. And you have the opportunity this very evening to know God as Father rather than know him as judge. Will you 
take that opportunity to know him as Father this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful for how you, you demonstrate to us your great mercy and kindness to us. We recognize that were it not for your grace, were it not for your mercy, those of us who have a genuine faith and a genuine love for you would have no hope of being saved. Because we've all done what is evil. We've all turned aside. And yet you are kind to us. You chose to love us, not because of any potential that we would have to, to do good things for you in the future or, or to be mighty people uh, in the future. You chose us because you just chose us, because you chose to love us. We're grateful for that. And we know that even among those of us who are genuine believers, uh, there are times when we act in our attitudes as if you don't exist. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your mercy, that you would help us to really strive to put off the old self and put on the new self, to be, to, 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 to uh, put away that sin that so easily entangles us and to put on righteousness. Help us to be more like Jesus so that we can grab more of who you are, so that we can pursue more of who you are. For those who are numbered among the fools this evening, we pray that you would bring clarity to them, that you would help them to see that though they might be good people, though they might claim to have a relationship with you, we pray that you would help them to see that they don't actually know you, that perhaps their faith is the faith of their parents, but not their own. Perhaps their understanding of who you are is not consistent with what you reveal about yourself in the scriptures. We pray that, Lord, you would help, you would help them see how lost they are and that they would come to know you. They would come to love you and experience the joy of your salvation. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and for your grace. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.